0: you ever go to a baseball game and you hear the batter called up to the plate, there is on the big mic a walkout song that's played. It's a few measures of a song that they've selected. The player, the batter, has selected to have played to announce his arrival. It's, um, usually it has a beat and a rhythm. It's supposed to make us think they're tough and cool. Um, and it's supposed to kind of accompany the player to give him a certain sort of gravitas, um, you know, as he prepares to hit the ball. And this isn't just in baseball, this idea it kind of crosses sports and basketball. When the team is about to come out at game time, all the lights go down in the arena, and then you get the sirens, you know, with, same with hockey, and then the beat comes in. And if you're a person like me, I'm a sucker for all of that. Uh, I go for it. And uh, my blood gets going, and then the spotlight hits. And, and with basketball, they'll call out the players one by one, and they have that guy with the, Alan Iverson. And he comes out, and, and I like Alan Iverson. Yeah, baby. And you know, I get all going, and in football, they bust through the tunnel, and he comes out, and there's cheerleaders and fireworks, <laughs> airplanes. And the walkout song is just, yeah. You know I mean, and in the military, the same thing, you know, there's generals come and we play songs we're we're obliged to kind of listen and endure the walkout song, um but even in I think of in when in, even when he invaded Iraq, there was this need for shock and awe. There was this strategic notion. That if we can prevent, present ourselves in such a way right up front, if we can just stand up and this is who we are with massive shock and awe that that would shake the will to fight of the enemy that's what that 's what the walkout song does, and kind of a and if you 're a professor and you don 't get any of this, you should know you haven 't escaped the walkout song if you 're going to give a lecture at UC Cal Berkeley on molecular biology someone will give you give you an introduction. And they're going to tell everybody everything you ever did and wrote and how smart you are, and that's your walkout song. It's just a different kind of walkout song. The whole idea is, is to kind of give the speaker or actor a certain degree of import to associate with them a certain kind of authority and that that authority would carry forth to to kind of infill the words or actions of the person. That's what's happening in a walkout song. And today, you're going to see... I haven't decided whether it's God's walkout song or whether it's Moses' walkout song, uh, but that's what we're going to listen to and study in his word. In, in Exodus 19, actually. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn to Exodus 19, which I think is page 52, if you're using one of the ones we provide. We have a lot to say. I have a lot to say. The Word has a lot to say. Uh, We're covering 11 chapters. So, just want to get you ready, put your listening caps on. We're going to look at one story that presents a truth that is reflective about all of the Word of God. But we're looking at one specific narrative that's kind of teaching this truth, but what I want you to do is, as we talk, is to kind of expound upon that truth and apply it across the Word of God. All right, let's begin the story here. Oh, last thing. For any of you who have seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, I'm going to ask that you forget everything you ever remember seeing, okay? Because in those movies, it's like the directors, they get tired of the story as soon as the water shut. And it, it's a to- totally unbiblical ending. So forget everything you said. Don't say, well, John, that's not what Charlton Heston said. All right? He's wrong. Okay. Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. Now let me stop there. Anybody have any idea what year it is on the Hebrew calendar? 1 It's the year 1. My wife left me a note. She said, "Why isn't it the year 0?" I don't know. I don't I could be wrong. It's, it's in the first year. Today is like 311 in the in the date. You know, um, because when they left Egypt, the Lord said, "This should be the first day of your first month of your first year." I'm starting your story now. Think of it that way: that the story of the Hebrew people is starting now. When Christ was born, we started over, didn't we? We said, well, "Let's call that the first year," because because essentially it's defining the moment of the story. So I, I say that because we've been in and around and with the faith for an awful long time. They are 61 days into a relationship with God. So we can maybe give them a break at one level, but also it should prepare us to see that God is going to do momentous things up front to establish ideas that are going to continue on throughout the faith. These things he's doing now are first things that are happening. Okay, let's keep reading, uh, 2 and 3. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Now, I want to pause just for a moment to say I would like you to pay attention to all the goings-ups and coming-downs of Moses, like where he is in the conversation, so The Israelite community, they camp at the base of the mountain. They they arrive at the mountain. Moses starts to go up the mountain, and the Lord speaks to him along the way. And this is what he wants Moses to do or to say. Verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my, command, my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The Lord just gave Moses the text for his first sermon. It is how you might think of this. He's, Moses, go speak to the people. And when you speak to the people, this is what I want you to say. And you can, I, I say the word sermon there because the language of, of what Moses was about to say is the language of a church. You are to me to be a holy nation, a royal a kingdom, a priesthood. We, we've, those of you who know the word have heard that somewhere else. It comes right out of the mouth of Peter. When Peter writes, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. There's an equivalent idea here that Peter is saying to the church of Jesus Christ, he's saying the very same ideas. In fact, I believe he's thinking of Exodus 19 when he's saying this and writing this, this idea of the people of God, the church of God as a royal priesthood that's been called out. And it's being called out for the first time in this way in Exodus chapter 19. Okay. Okay. So let's keep going. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. So Moses went up the mountain. God said, Moses, go tell the people these words. Moses went down the mountain and Moses spake. Is that right? He said all the words that God told him. So it, the Bible's very clear. God, Moses said these words. Moses goes back down the hill and says all these words. And the people say in verse 8, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brings that response back up the mountain. He's a very athletic man. Back down the mountain, back up the mountain. But what you see in all this is that Moses is mediating between God and the people. Moses, say these words to the people. Because this is what the word is, by the way. The word is the mediation of God to people. Moses, take these words to the people. Moses takes the words to the people. The people say, We will do that. Moses heads back up the hill and he's preparing to tell God what the people said. And the Lord says this to him on the way I am going, this is verse 9, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. What is the Lord doing there? It's a walkout song. The Lord is saying, Moses, if you're going to keep being the guy to do this, I'm going to give you a certain sense of gravitas I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a mandate of authority on you, and I have to do it so that when words come out of your mouth, when you say the Lord said, the people actually believe the Lord said. Otherwise, pretty soon, I mean, we're people. We know what's going to happen. Pretty soon Moses is going to come up to the mountain and come down and say, the Lord said this. And we're going to go, yeah, the Lord said that right. <laughs> I ain't doing that. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew people are going to do that to Moses anyway. Right, But the Lord is trying to stem the tide of that, at least for a brief moment, to say, what I'm going to do is, is you're going to go down and speak to the people, and when you do, I'm going to show up. And they're going to have no doubt in their mind that when you speak, you speak for me. That's what the Bible is. Let's see what happens. So here's kind of the prelude to the walkout. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not, at, not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people of the Lord, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day abstain from sexual relations now when has this happened in the bible so we know the whole story right remember they are 311 when in the bible this is why movies like ten commandments get me upset because when in the bible has god decided that heaven is going to come down and scrape the earth and God is going to speak out and that the entire mountain is holy. I mean, this is profound. This is a profound moment. God is saying, I'm going to take heaven and and you're going to see it in a second. I'm going to take heaven and it's going to descend until the, the, the doors of the temple open up to the peak of the mountain. And out of that, my voice will come and it will billow like fire and smoke and the world will know that I am God. Let's see what happens. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. There's an image in Revelation like the best visions we get of heaven, many of them are in Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 12, the presence of God is described as being inside of a temple and it says the doors of the temple were opened and there were peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and a violent earthquake and a large hailstorm. And then later on, I think in the 17th chapter when the bowls of wrath are being brought out to be poured on the earth, they come out of the temple. And it says, and as the bowls were carried out by mighty angels, smoke billowed out of the temple in such a way that you couldn't even see in heaven. It was filled with smoke. Do you see what's happening here on the top of this mountain? The very own presence of the Lord is being presented to the people. This doesn't happen every day. In the movie, the waters close and Moses shows up with tablets. There is something that's absolutely profound here. The Lord shows up and says I'm going to come and present myself in a way that has never been seen before by my people. And somewhere in there Moses knows the cue. I'm always I'm going to be curious. I'm going to ask God like how did Moses know in the smoke and everything and the trumpets when to be like God? But nonetheless Moses seems right on cue to speak. And the Lord answers, and it says this, The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So you have this image, God descends right to the mountain, I could almost imagine God could step out in his, in his presence, could step out onto the top of the mountain, and Moses Goes to the top of the mountain and the Lord warns Moses again, repeats the warning of uh, this mountain is now holy because I'm on it. So tell the people and I think, I'm guessing, but I think Moses' response had God not been so fabulously holy would have almost been rhetorical. Like, I don't think anyone's coming up this hill, God. Last I checked, there was a lot of trembling in the camp. You, you know, I mean, because remember, they were all trembling and all fearful and the trumpets got louder and louder and louder. I mean, imagine that in your mind. Imagine just the brilliance of this, of what's happening. I, I mean, I, I so last night I prayed. I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, if you would be kind enough, can you give me a dream of, of how it felt? Like I want to experience the terror the terrible nature of your arrival, so that I can tell the church. And that sounded like a fair prayer because it wasn't like, Lord, give me a million bucks. Lord, make me feel your terrible presence. And he didn't. Um, (laughs) And and I, I think, by the way, it's because the word of God is sufficient. He'd say it's in the word of God. But I will say this, you, in hearing the word of God, should stop and pause and try to imagine that because it's there. When the presence of God is so powerful that you you hug the earth and just hope it ends. And he says to Moses, go back down and get Aaron. I imagine he wants to endow upon Aaron the same sort of authority. Go get Aaron, tell everybody else to stay, and I will speak. And Moses turns, and he's heading down the mountain. And as he's heading down the mountain to go tell the people and to go get Aaron, the Lord speaks. Look at chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. So Moses is going down, and on the way down, or when Moses got down, Moses has not yet come back up. Moses is down. Moses is with the people, or on the way to the people. God speaks. Now, if if we want to step back for a second and imagine that our God is just like everybody else's pagan God across the world— that he's just some kind of Baal or Astra or Moloch or Dagon or whatever it is, something from the, the Hindu faith or the Buddha or the Native American faith. We want to imagine a God right where heaven and earth meet and the sky's being ripped and torn and billowing smoke. It says three times smoke. It says there's lots of smoke, billowing smoke, smoke from a furnace. And it's like the mountain is on fire and it's just turning and turning and turning. And we were told to guess, what, what do you think God's going to do next? I think nine times out of 10 people would say, I don't know, like a huge idol of himself or a huge image or temple or what. I don't think people would guess that what the Lord's going to do next is tell people to honor their father and mother and not to steal and not to covet. I mean, you cannot turn the volume up any louder on this event. It is earth shattering, momentous. And when the Lord, when all of this is happening, the Lord uses it to say, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God before me. Honor the Sabbath. Don't bow down to idols. Don't covet. Don't murder. It's 10 words. the first idea of the word this morning that that I, I want you to try to hold on to is that the word of god is the climax of heaven meeting earth this the word of god is is the re it's what God's trying to do when he meets with us. He's trying to explain himself and divulge himself and describe himself. And that happens that the word of God is not secondary to our relationship with Christ, the reality of the people of God. It's central to the reality of the people of God. All the people are gathered around the mountain. All of them are hoping that this will end. All of them are gripping in terror and wondering. And God uses that moment to share his law. That's what he does. The word of God is divinely spoken and inspired, and it is the climax. It is the climactic gift to the church. And we'll see. Look at this. Let me pick up in chapter 18. Mm. Verse 18. Chapter 20, verse 18. says this, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Do you see what happens? Moses comes down. God speaks in billows behind him the ten commandments of God. I am the Lord your God. And he begins to speak. And when, Mo- when they finally turn to Moses, they say to Moses, it has to stop. We can bear this no longer. Moses... Whatever you tell us, we'll do. You go listen to God. You go receive from the Lord. Just, just we cannot bear to live beneath the mighty voice of the living God. And Moses says this uh, paradoxical statement. He says, don't be afraid. The purpose of this is so that you would fear God. Which is, God, is, is the Bible's way of saying, don't be afraid for your life. God is not about to take your life. What God is trying to do is instill in you a healthy sense of who he is so that the word of God would preserve your life from sin, right? He's just trying to instill in you a a healthy fear of God's to keep you from sinning. In other words, God's voice is imparting into this very word for the people His power, so that when we read this, we realize it's not written by a man. It's not written by a prophet. It's written by God himself, and the fear of God should keep us from sinning. It means that when God says, thou shalt not murder, he's serious. That his voice shakes the earth when he says this. The walkout song was fabulously successful. And Moses, Moses then turns. He turns up the mountain. You imagine he grabs Aaron. And into the cloud they walk. Then God begins to speak. And over the next couple chapters, you can see he, he speaks here. Look at chapter 21. You know, so you have this moment where God's going to speak. This profound moment, to me, it is as significant as when God enters into covenant with Abraham and the pot pot of fire goes through between the animals. This is a fabulous moment that apparently Hollywood never seems to want to talk about. And then in all of this, Moses goes up in the cloud and then what does God tell him? God opens his mouth and says, if you have any Hebrew servants, here's an appropriate way to care for them. And... If someone gets injured by an axe head, here's the way that you deal with the justice of that. And by the way, this is how you celebrate the Sabbath, and these are the festivals you want to do, and people have property and they have property that need to be protected. And there's, we have social responsibilities. Look at chapter 21. By the way, these are see the quotations. Look at chapter 21. This is God speaking. These are the laws you are to set before them. God is speaking to Moses in the cloud at the top of the mountain. Chapter 21. See all the quotation marks there? Look at chapter 22. You see the quotation marks? God's not done talking. Chapter 22, chapter 23, quotation marks, Sabbath laws, the annual festival, all the way through chapter 23. As essentially what happens is Moses goes up the mountain. He receives the, the law from God. Okay, that's what's trying to be described here is that the law, the, the large law was given to Moses during this time. This unbelievably... I'm I'm using maybe your words, not mine. I'm not using your... I'm using some person's words. The unbelievably mundane, boring laws that we don't like to read and we skip whenever we get a chance. That's what God gave Moses in the smoke of his presence. Which again, feels odd to me. Like this huge event... And we come out of it knowing about what to do with Hebrew servants. Which raises the second point, which is God's word gives direction for our daily life. That your, you living out your daily life is not a byproduct that the, the Bible is sometimes concerned about. The Bible and God's word is eminently concerned with how you live your life day in and day out. It is at, as a first thing practical, it is absolutely pragmatic. It is, it is, it is trying to deal with your very decisions that you're going to make today and tomorrow. That's what the Bible is concerned about. The, all the other laws did not come in the form of a post-it folded by God, like an airplane that kind of flew down the mountain and landed in Moses' lap. It's in the smoke of the fire, the consuming fire in which Moses is. That's where God's telling him about the Sabbath. God cares how we live our life, and his word speaks to that. Okay. you should be in chapter 24 now. I want to show you one last thing that, the, that about the word, and then we'll kind of flip, flip the idea on its head. So after some time, chapters 21, 22, 23, the Lord has given Moses all of this information. Now let's look at chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Okay, so he's received everything from the Lord, okay? It says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early in the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, he read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. By the way, we still don't have those tablets. Charlton Heston still not showed up yet. This is, they just entered into covenant with God. Did you see that? Moses comes down. Moses says probably to the elders, "This is, this is what God told me." And he tells them the laws and everything, and the elders say, whatever we will do, whatever was said." And so then Moses, just look at the care about the words. Then Moses writes down the words into a book of the called the Book of the Covenant. He writes down the words, then they build an altar, then they sacrifice. then he, Moses opens the book and reads to all the people in their hearing the teachings of, from the Book of the Covenant to which all the people reply, "We will do everything the Lord has said." We will obey at which point blood is splattered on the altar, recognizing God's responsibility and blood is cast on the people, recognizing their responsibility. This issue of this is a life and death covenant that the people are binding themselves in with the Lord. And only then are the people united with God as his people. Now in the 24th chapter, the Israelites are the people of God. He is their God and they are his people. And that covenant is built around the word of God. We cannot, we cannot overplay this. We cannot minimize this. The covenant between God and man was built around this. How else does God tell you who he is and how to live? I want to stop and, well, I want to say this last point that we just have to notice is that in all of this, God begins to write things down for the people. In fact, we see it. We see it one more time. Let's keep reading 12 to 18. You'll see this idea of writing down one more time. The Lord said to Moses, now that the people are God's people now, and they're in covenant, and the Lord says, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you, the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as, as he went up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. We know from other texts in Deuteronomy, Moses was in the cloud forty days and forty nights. He neither ate nor drank. He feasted on the word of God. When when Jesus quotes in the desert from Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I think, I know that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8, but I think that Jesus is thinking of these moments. Saying, if I am in pure fellowship with God, his word alone is sufficient. And it is during that time that Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights. And God with his very own finger inscribes his very own words on these tablets. And he inscribes every word and he gives it to Moses. And that's what Moses has. This last idea is if God, God cares so much about his word that he has it written down. It isn't like he had a conversation in 3 and we have to kind of scratch and figure out what was said. God has it written down for his people to carry with them so that we can understand the will of God. This is the word of God. This is it. God uses mediators like Moses or the prophets or the apostles or Christ to comment and edify the word of God and to assemble it and accumulate the word of God, his full countenance, his full revelation. It comes from God. It comes through mediators and is given to us. Who writes it? doesn't necessarily need to be the finger of God every time. The finger of God reaches through man and into their finger. And that's how we've received the word of God, whether it's God on Mount Sinai saying, thou shalt not murder, or it's Christ on the mountain saying, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say, it's the word of God. It's given to us as the climax of us having an ability to have a relationship with God, we relate to him through the word. We covenant with him through the word. The written word of God is given to us to preserve who we are. And I want to look at one last story of what happens without the word. So we're going to leave 24, but I want, to, I want you to turn pages slowly because this, this is... This is too fun for me. This is fun. Look at... uh, So when Moses goes up in 24 to the clouds, imagine just the presence here. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. Clouds descend on it like a consuming fire. I just imagine the holiness of all this, that Moses has to wait outside the clouds for six days and only on the seventh is he permitted in. And then he's in for 40, where he neither eats nor drinks. And during that time... What do you think God tells them? Here's how you should build the tabernacle and the ark and the table and the burnt offerings and the lampstand. And here's the ephod for the priest and the garments for the priest and everything the priest should wear and other priestly garments and how they should be consecrated. And, you know, again, like the general sentiment of the church is boring, but... At the same time, we should recognize how God split things up. The first time Moses goes up, God speaks down the law. He speaks down the law, which becomes the covenant, the 10 words and the rest of the law, to which the people engage in a covenant with God. We will do everything God has said. Then call, God calls Moses up again, and when God calls Moses up again, now the instructions for Moses is how to, get, how to build a place so that God can live among his people. Now that they are in relationship, God says, now I will dwell among you. I will tabernacle with you. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us is the actual text there. Now that we're in covenant with God, God says, now come up here so I can build for myself a tent of meeting so that I can travel with you and be with you and speak through you on a regular basis because now I am your God and you are my people. And so this second journey to me is a very tender journey. This time, these 40 days with the Lord, of Moses just realizing this God isn't just God. This God cares. I mean, I would do anything to be in this kind of 40 days of God's affection. And during this time, we get to the 32nd chapter. Meanwhile, back at the camp... There are the people who do not have the word. Now, they have the covenant. They technically have possession of the word. So listen, church. They have the word, but they don't have the word, if you know what I mean. They have the word, but it's sitting on a shelf. They have the word, but they don't know the word. They have the word, but they not desire neither to know it better nor to make it part of their life. That's what I mean by don't have the word, okay? Remember, this is the church. This is the covenanted people of God that we're about to read about. This is us. This ain't a different sort of dysfunctional human. This is us. First six verses. When, of 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, "Tomorrow we will ha- there will be a feast to the Lord." So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down and ate and uh, to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The first thing we do without the word of God is we author our own religion. We will author our own religion. If we don't open God's word and see discreetly how God wants things to be done, we will author our own religion. In fact, sometimes our desire to author our own religion will prevent us from opening God's word and seeing what he intends. Listen, they they are not inventing a totally new idea of God. They're not purposely saying we don't want to have anything to do with God. They are fashioning the same God in a way that is more amenable to their spirit. Do you see what Aaron says? Here is the Lord, your God. Look at it, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is your Bible's way of telling you that he just said Yahweh. He's not introducing a new God. He's introducing the same God in a new way, which we all understand. We like to say, oh, the Bible is so old, it's not relevant. It took 40 days before the people said that. 40 days, the Bible's out of context and is no longer relevant. And is in need of tweaking and updating and kind of livening up. In 40 days, of course we say that. The Bible is never relevant, nor is it in context with people whose sinful hearts are wanting to do something else. If you want to do something that is against the word, the word is not relevant. If you want to do something that is not contextual with God's revelation, God is out of context. I'm saying without the word, we will invent our own religion. And this is a teaching for the church. When the church does not open this often, we begin to author it in our own way. Here's the second thing that we see. Look at the... uh, I need to find out where I am. Look at verse 15. Let's, let's skip a little bit. Now, meanwhile, uh, the Lord says to Moses, okay, it's time for you to go down. Um, and I don't want you to be too surprised, Moses, but you're not going to be happy with what you see. So Moses is heading down, and this is what I said. Moses, in verse 15, turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the... Now, listen to how the writer... Makes us wonder, The writer just cherishes these stones. Okay, just listen to this. All the work of 40 days. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God. Engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. The second thing the Word of God does is show us our sinfulness, it shows us our sinfulness. That's exactly what these tablets did. These tablets were not destroyed in vain. These tablets did exactly what they were designed to do. Moses is carrying down the covenantal tablets with the law of God written for his people who had bound themselves in covenant and sacrifice and blood at risk of death. We will do everything that's written on the covenant. We will do it all. And Moses walks into this revelry in this crowd dancing and he breaks the tablets saying as to those to say, you have violated the covenant. You have broken the very laws that 40 days ago you bound yourself in through blood. The word of God, and only the word of God will do this. When you don't read the word of God, when you don't receive the word of God as a deeply cherished possession, you turn down God's ability to tell you of your sinfulness and your sinfulness is always the problem. We close up the book and say how about we just say god's the problem. When we open the word of god, every time we open the word of god, there should be this part in us that just feels moses break break the covenant just i cannot i cannot do what god requires. We are unable to do what God demands. Be holy as I am holy. I cannot do that. From sunrise to sunset, the best I can do is occasionally long to hope that I might want to be holy. Without the law, without the word of God, we have no sense of our sinfulness. What a gift that God brings to a people he's trying to refine and make into pure. Pure as gold is to say, the first thing we need to do is show you who you are so that then I can begin to make you who you will be. That's the second thing without the word of God that we don't have. And this is the third thing. Turn to chapter 33 and we're, we're close. Our last chapter. Now, I want you to listen to the language very closely, okay? The Lord's anger burned at the people when this happened. He was upset. A lot of people were struck dead. A lot of people died. Um, And in all of this, they have violated the covenant of God. They are no longer, they can no longer claim the covenant of God for them. God has no responsibility for these people at all. So listen to the language now. Chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Do you hear it? That's good. Do you hear it? Who brought him up out of Egypt? Yeah, now it's all Moses. Right? This is like when you say, like, the dog goes poopy in in the house and you say to your spouse, that's your dog. That's what's going on, right? He says, Get up, take the people, the ones you brought up, and go. Now, we keep listening. You brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised on oath to who? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. You see what he's saying? He's saying... Grab the people that came with you across the water. I don't know whoever they are. Whatever that gaggle is, grab them, and you take them to the land of milk and honey. Why? Because I promised it 430 years ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I owe Abraham a promise. So I'm fulfilling my promise to Abraham despite these people. So get it, go, just go. Go, Moses, and your people go with you. Without the word of God, our hope is uncertain. Just go. This is it. You know, you you want God, you want God, but you don't want to follow his precepts, his laws. I mean, just read the Bible all the times. You hear, follow my precepts, obey my commands, listen to my statutes, cherish my laws, follow after my covenant. Read Psalm 119, read it every day for a month. How I long for your teachings and your statutes. How they give me life. This is a way that we say we don't, we want the blessings of God, but we don't want the laws and the truth of God. God says, fine, you know what? you know what, on account of Abraham, you go. You go. In fact, this is what the, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments and mourned Horeb. And at Mount Horeb, they mourned and for a time. And they built a tent of meeting. And Moses approached the Lord during a time. And, and over time, the Lord returns back. The Lord turns back as though as his anger has waned and his spirit of forgiveness is there. And, and that is when the Lord says, Moses, go up the mountain again. And receive the word again. Again, Moses goes up for forty days and forty nights, in which time he neither eats nor drinks, and receives from the Lord tablets again. And this here, you know, when we open the word, there's this is this is the true beauty of God's whole word, is that if we were just left there, right? All we would ever know is we cannot keep the word of God faithfully. We cannot live up to his statutes. There'd be this feeling like every time Moses is going to come down from the mountain, he's going to break the tablets on our heads. There is this sense I mean, there's this sense of I'm in a hopeless covenant. There is this just woefulness. And it's in Deuteronomy that the Lord begins to work this out. Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he says, Moses says out of his mouth, there will come a man who is a prophet like me, whose word, the words of God are in his mouth. Do what he says. There will be a new covenant. There's this sense, this idea, this, this second journey up the mountain that Moses has is for me, I, I, I reflect on it as a, as a typology of what Christ is going to eventually do. That the first Covenant we cannot keep, and it will be broken, but there will come somebody who can go up the mountain again. Up and be with the Lord again and receive from the Lord a new covenant, a covenant in which we can place our hope, in which our hope can be secure. And the writer of Hebrews, he sees this perfectly. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking the words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The writer of Hebrews says, That is not the covenant in which you and I place hope. He goes on, he says, But you have come to a Mount Zion to a heavenly Jerusalem, to a city of the living God. You have come to where thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of the righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the one sprinkled with blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Without the word, your hope is not secure. Without the word, we're not made conscious of our sin. And without the word, we will invent our own religion. God comes so that we might have life through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is the gift to mankind, and it's brought to us. And the writer of Hebrews ends that whole statement with this sentence. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. is the word centered in our lives. Amen.